0: Welcome back to a new episode of new books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee from the University of Arizona. today we welcome Professor William Ferris and his new book A Bowl for a Coin: The Commodity History of Japanese tea It was published by the University of Hawaii press in 2019. Professor Ferris is a professor emeritus of Japanese history at the University of Hawaii, where he taught and researched about early modern Japanese history. This book is a deep dive into the history of autism in Japan, from its introduction in the 8th century to medieval period cultivation and to its modern day transformation. Through the consumption and commodification of tea, Professor Ferris also pictures the transformations of the Japanese society of centuries. So welcome, Professor Ferris. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much. It's it's good to be here.
0: (laughs) Thank you. And my apologies that we missed your book pitch from a year ago. Um, You have been studying and writing about Japanese history for such a long time. What have you recently been interested in?
1: Well, actually, I made a rather important discovery. Uh, during the pandemic uh, of COVID 19, um, I had a friend on the um, pre modern Japanese studies network ask me about whether there had ever been plague in Japan. And at first I said, no, I don't think so. I've written many books, I've written a lot on epidemics in Japanese history. I said, no, I don't think so. But then I began to look at the evidence again. And I found what I think is probably the plague that came into Japan, uh, both in the late 9th and early 10th century, and then most importantly, brought in by the Mongols in the 13th and 14th century. So if that's true, that will be a really big discovery. It's not exactly 100% certain yet, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping to publish a paper on that very soon.
0: Wow, exciting. I look forward to reading it then. Um, so what? why did you choose to write about tea? It's quite different from uh, some of the topics you've written about over the years. So why tea?
1: Well, uh, there were actually two reasons. First of all, um, when I went to the University of Hawaii, I was the Sin... Distinguished chair in uh, traditional Japanese history and culture. And one of my duties there was to work with Urasenke, which is a Japanese tea lineage, tea, tea group, and work with Dr. Sen Genshitsu, uh, the, the former head of Urasenke. And I taught a course on tea. I wasn't interested in tea at all, and I'm, I still am not really terribly interested in the tea ceremony. But as a result of writing that course, I thought about, you know, there's so much that's written on the Japanese tea ceremony on Chanoyu, but there's really nothing written on tea as it was consumed daily or as a kind of economic commodity. And so I thought, can I do this? And I got a grant from Fulbright to go to Japan in 2010, 2011, began researching. It was was very hard at first because Everything you came to was chanoyu, was with the tea ceremony. And then uh, I found a scholar in the Kyoto-Nara region who wrote some things on tea and on the farming and processing and trading of tea. And that led me into other things. And then I found more and more, and gradually it became a book.
0: That's awesome. Um, so before we talk about the history of tea in Japan, what are some of the key factors about tea that would help us understand your points made in the book since it's such um you know it's such an everyday object right now and we rarely think about what it is what is it about tea um that well that makes it such a everyone's favorite beverage um so what about some of the I guess, the scientific aspects, the factors about tea that we should know?
1: Okay, first of all, uh, almost all teas come from the same plant, and that plant is Camellia sinensis. And that's true of green tea, that's true of most white teas, and it's also true of black tea that you drink. So no matter what tea you're drinking, you're probably drinking the tea from the same plant. The difference in green tea is that you may often be getting actually the ground up leaf, particularly if you drink powdered tea, you'll be getting the ground up leaf. And in black tea, you only get the uh, the liquids that come off the tea when it's put into hot water. So that's that's one difference. Um, I would say that there are things to know about tea about Not every place in the world can grow tea. You need to have a fairly warm climate like Japan. If we look at the history of tea growing in Japan, uh, most of the areas uh, where it can be grown are warm. Uh, there's actually a line you could draw in Japan. It, it doesn't grow very well in the north of Japan. So it needs to be warm. You need to have lots of rain. And Japan has lots of rain. So that, that's good. And the other thing you need to have is loose, sandy soil so that when the rain comes in, the, the water will dissipate, go down to the roots, and then go away. You don't, tea doesn't grow well in swampy areas. So, so uh, that's part of the growing of tea. But then uh, you also have the processing of tea. And there are probably as many ways to process tea. And by processing tea, I mean, once you pluck the leaves, uh, sometimes you steam it, sometimes you stir-roast it uh some you always do different things there are lots of different ways to process tea and because of that we have many varieties of tea so and then of course and then of course tea has been traded and it's also it's also a gift in japan It's very popular as a gift for people and then it's also uh popular for a while it was a tax item so it's it's it, if you think about farming processing and trade it's, it's very interesting. And then uh, tea has also left a very important imprint on the culture of Japan and on China and on, to some extent, on Korea and also on Vietnam, all areas that, that are important for exporting tea in the world. Uh, and those imprints run from poetry to art to advertisements to TV commercials, all sorts of things.
0: So how was, um, how, I guess, and when was tea first introduced to Japan? Um, and when it was first introduced, who consumed it and how did they enjoy it? How, how was it talked about? Are there any textual or visual materials that portrayed uh, tea being introduced or consumed in, the, in its earliest stage in Japan?
1: Tea was probably introduced in Japan. We don't know for sure because we don't we don't have the records that uh, th- there is a sort of a mythological story about the introduction of tea that links it to a famous emperor in Japan in the early eight hundreds. But uh, scientific e- evidence and genealogical evidence they've they've looked at plants in China, Korea, and Japan, and they found a link, and they think that the that tea it was introduced in Japan probably sometime in, in the early 700s, maybe maybe even as late as 750. At the same time, it was introduced into Korea. So the, the although tea is not as important in Korea as it is in Japan or China, it was also introduced into Korea. And it was brought into Japan undoubtedly by Buddhist monks because those are the people who drank tea in China, in Korea, and in Japan. And in if you look at the history of tea in Japan, uh, the tea serves as a kind of a network former. It forms a network among all of the Buddhist monks, whether they're Chinese, Korean, or Japanese. And they, they give it back and forth as gifts, and they drink together, and they really enjoy their tea. So um, that's how tea was introduced. It was first uh, – so it was, it was probably at first farmed not very widely in Japan – and not very well and probably some bushes were planted that when went then went wild but the most important thing was the processing of tea and tea was processed on a kind of grinder it's called a drugus druggist mortar and the drugus mortar looks like a wheel that grinds into a trough and because it was processed that way it, the tea came out very clumpy it was like a big clump and when you put it in water it didn't turn green, it turned brown, and it was very bitter. So the early people who drank, the monks, and then eventually aristocrats, on aristocrats who also drank tea, they all drank it as this kind of very bitter uh, substance. And for that reason, it was mostly known as a medicine.
0: That's, um, that's quite interesting to know that it wasn't tea wasn't that enjoyable at a time when people thought it was uh, very fancy. So how did uh, tea transform from being a kind of medicine to beverage? Well, it's a long story,
1: and even today, if you notice, uh, when people think about green tea, they think about its medicinal effects. They, they say, well, isn't green tea good for preventing cancer or can it prevent you, prevent you from having uh, diabetes or other things? None of these things are particularly true uh, for green tea over any other kind of tea, but it still carries with this this idea that part, one aspect of tea is that it's a medicine, but it was converted from a medicine to a drinking beverage for something for parties, for something for, that people really enjoyed, probably beginning in the 1100s, late 1100s. And really, the uh, initial work was done by the Chinese. And the Chinese invented the Chausu, which, uh, in other words, the tea grinder, which, which is very different from this druggist mortar, and which really grinds the tea into a very fine powder. And it, it's a green, it's not brown. And along with that, the Chinese invented the whisk and the whisk, these things were all invented in China, probably right around 1100. And they made their way to Japan sometime in the 1100s. And so this new tea powder tea, as you know, although it's sort of an acquired taste, still many people enjoyed tea much more. And then it became an object for parties. And by, by, 1250 or even 1300 you see lots of people having tea powdered tea particularly and also uh, steep leaf tea uh, not not very well done but a kind of steep leaf tea that was very crude but this is all part of parties and people would have noodles and they would have dumplings and they would have other things. It was very much a kind of scenario where uh, tea was linked to China. And since China had such tremendous cultural cachet in uh, Japan uh, for the elite who drank this, and they were the only ones drinking at this time, monks, civil aristocrats from Heian, and then eventually in the 1200s, warriors started to acquire the taste for tea, and they liked it very much. And um, then it really became sort of a party Thing, that you could drink the tea at parties. And then it became a something that, that people enjoyed for the taste. And so that I think the technological changes were very important in having, making tea move from this bitter brown uh, substance where you put persimmon peels and other kinds of things in it to, uh, to dilute the taste to um, something that was green, tasted much better and could go with other food and then you could have it at parties. It also takes on a very much a social aspect that when you have guests, you serve them tea, just like they do in Japan today. So um, all of this was, the conversion really began in the late 1100s in Japan and then continued in the 1200s and then continued, and eventually it begins to seep not only to be with the elite but also become something that commoners begin to pick up.
0: Fascinating. And is this where uh, this phrase of ball foot coin came from? Um, Does that describe um, its accessibility around this time?
1: Yes. Well, uh, well, in all cases, of course, T is not just happening in a vacuum, but it's something that... um, happens along with the rest of Japanese society. And beginning in, particularly in the 1400s, Japan really developed a commercial economy and you have artisans and merchants of all kinds selling all sorts of goods in Japan as the population grew and as uh, probably per capita income went up a little bit in the 1400s. And so in Kyoto and in Nara, and maybe even in some rural towns in Japan, you had these merchants who carried tea, all the tea on their back, and then they carried the implements for tea as well. They set up tea shops, and they would walk through the seats of Kyoto, and they would cry uh, a bowl for a coin. And they would cry, and then common people began to drink tea. And so this in Japanese is ipuku isen. But in any case though, so this Phrase became very common and it served as a nice title for the book.
0: Nice. Um, so, you mentioned earlier that um, nowadays, if we were to look, well, before your book, of course, um, when we look at the history of tea, it's often associated with Chanoyu, a tea ceremony. And um, Tea ceremonies or tea parties are also associated often with Zen Buddhism, um, especially in Japan's medieval period. So what was the connection like? How was they associated?
1: Well, I'm, I'm not a person. I think that the general trend in, Je- in Japanese studies now is to minimize the amount of connection between Zen and tea, and particularly Chanoyu. But there is a connection. There's no doubt about it. So you're right to point to it. And if you look in Zen Zen rituals, tea was consumed regularly in Zen monasteries. And beginning in the 1300s, the uh, Ashikaga Shogunate, the uh, the third uh, military government of Japan, uh, was uh, very closely linked to Zen monasteries and Zen temples. And in all these areas, as part of the ritual of being a Zen monk, you drank tea and you drank it with meals. You drank it in various rituals. So it was very much a part of the Zen existence of drink tea. And so it's very important with Zen ritual. But then it's also very interesting because there, we have collections of poetry. Zen, Zen monks were the leading intellectuals of their time. And they wrote poetry. They wrote their poetry in Chinese. So once again, you have these Zen monks, many of whom were traveling to China. And to Korea, and really viewed Chinese culture as the center of the world uh, in some respects, in many respects. And so, therefore, uh, they wrote their poetry in Chinese. And when you read the poetry, uh, the poetry uh, often makes reference to karma and to Buddhist senses, the Buddhist sense of evanescence that things are here today, but they're gone tomorrow. And so you have this link culturally with Zen, and then you have the link in the rituals in the Zen monasteries and temples as well. So it is an important link, but I just don't want to overdo it. The early temples that were monks drank tea were all much earlier sects, and they, they like tea as well.
0: Right, so that's one thing that I've been curious about for quite a while, um, is that when we talk about the the connection between green tea and what well, tea ceremony and Zen Buddhism, um, what well, what happened to the other sects of Buddhism? There were a lot of other um, sects of temples. Um, so, in your in this um, in the text that you looked through, were there any indication that that they were also Drinking tea um, or holding hosting tea ceremony in other sects of Buddhism.
1: The uh, I think I think you have to distinguish between drinking tea and the tea ceremony. The tea ceremony doesn't really begin get its beginning until probably the second half of the fourteen hundreds or maybe even the, and certainly the fifteen hundreds with the famous uh, Sin Sen Dikyu that you probably know uh, and he he was a figure of the sixteenth century. So the the tea ceremony as it's practiced today really got its beginning in the 1500s and late 1400s and 1500s but before that time buddhist temples of several sects and i don't know if you want me to name the sects or not but there were like kegon ritsu shingon all all of those uh, were very famous for the consumption of tea and there's there's a a temple uh, called Shomyoji, which sits today in Yokohama. And it's it's related to the Kanazawa Hojo, who were uh, a family of warriors that served very high positions in the Kamakura Bakufu, Kamakura Military Government. And that temple was not a Zen temple, but it was a Ritsu temple. And the Kanazawa got a lot of their tea from Shomyoji. Shomyoji also had fields where they grew tea. They had... Uh, estates where they where the peasants were supposed to farm tea. So all, for all of these reasons, and tea was something that was associated with just Buddhism in general, and as a way of networking with monks. And you network with Chinese monks, and you network with Korean monks, and they all work together. So I have this vision of a world, uh, unlike what we're usually taught, of kind of horizontal relationships among monks of all kinds in these different areas. And I think that the cultural differences between China, Korea, and Japan, among the elite anyway, meant much, much less, and rather the tea joined them all together.
0: Now that you mention um, the cultivation of tea at this time, how large of the scale are we talking about?
1: How large, how large is the usual tea patch?
0: ah uh, the, the 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 how how um large the the tea fields were how many how much did these regions invest into producing tea growing tea
1: mhm okay well um the uh we really get our first information on the size of tea fields uh beginning in the 1300s and 1400s and 1500s Tea fields are incredibly small. I mean, they might be one-tenth of an acre. And one thing that uh definitely points to the development of tea in Japan is that uh orga- temples, other organizations, other people, and peasants as well learn to cultivate tea. You know, you have a have a patty, a rice patty, and then you have the rows around the rice patty, so then they're raised. Uh, the, the the furrows around the rice paddy, and the, the uh, Japanese farmers learned to cultivate tea on those furrows. So you had very small fields, you had, um, sometimes it would be like a house garden of tea, just tea for the family, and um, then there would be tea on the Uh, Raised portions of the um, rice paddy. And so you're talking about something where tea was not, tea was widely cultivated, but it was not cultivated in acres and acres, but it was cultivated rather in a tenth of an acre or even areas less than that.
0: Now, entering the Tokugawa period, so entering the um, 17th century, There was a significant growth of population as well as um, advancement in agriculture scales and techniques. So how did the production and consumption of tea transform during this time?
1: Tokugawa period is really, uh, in many ways, sort of the heyday of of, of green tea in Japan. It's the the best time for tea, Uh, particularly during the 1700s. Cultivation spread uh in japan not i mentioned that tea is limited by temperature and if you think of japan if you draw a line between just north of tokyo and across uh honshu to over to niigata that that is the kind of the natural limit of tea but in the togao period peasant those japanese peasants were really pretty smart and what they learned to do was cultivate tea everywhere in japan almost to the very northern tip of Honshu. And they did this through various means. Um, they would cover the roots in winter so that they didn't get too cold, even though it was too cold. So one of the characteristics of farming is that you have farming spreading to areas uh, beyond the natural climate uh, limitations of tea. You also have the production of manuals, farm manuals, that tell us a lot about the production of tea in terms of farming. And they talk about, um, they're incredibly detailed. I can't, I don't think I can really remember everything about them. But anyway, though, they're incredibly detailed instructions to people about how to farm, farm tea. And they talk about using fertilizer. And by the Togawa period, you did use fertilizer in growing tea. And so there are lots of improvements in farming. uh, And then then another part of it was improvements in processing. And one of the things that encouraged the production of tea, particularly for the elite, was the development of what we know today as sincha uh, by a man named Nagatani around 1740. Uh, He developed this in Uji, which is of course very famous in uh, tea lore in Japan and he developed a method where the tea leaves after they had been plucked and steamed would then be roasted on top of a heated drum and people would use their hands to kind of uh mold the tea and to roll the tea and do all kinds of things and when this tea was in uh roasted and uh the sticks were taken out and everything was done well It it gave rise to the most delicious of all teas in Japan, even more delicious than powdered tea. This tea soon became more popular even than powdered tea. And it became a big commercial success too. And it was um, cultivated very uh, widely in Japan. But one thing you should also remember is that most of the people who drank tea in Japan in the Togao period were farmers. And many of them did not have the sophisticated knowledge to do sencha, but instead they did bancha. They did very uh, re- relatively low grades of tea, and by far the majority of people who drank tea in Japan in the Tokugawa period drank this uh, lower-level kind of tea, bancha, which was a much simpler but was still very delicious. So all of those things were important. Probably the most important thing of all, though, was the development of commercial networks. And certain, certain regions begin to specialize in tea, like Shizuoka and Uji and uh, parts of Omi province and Ise and other places all specialize in tea. And then they be- begin to get the trading of tea. So by the time you get to the end of the Togao period, you have Japan is just a wash in tea varieties. There are all kinds of tea varieties. And today, if you go to a place in Kyoto uh, I believe it's on Shijo Avenue, I'm not sure, but anyway i believe I think it's called Fukuju in anyway though you can go there today and you can order whatever brand of tea you want and you can get it from any place in Japan so uh it was very important that people uh during the Togao period learned or developed the knowledge to make all kinds of different teas so there there were changes in farming, there were changes in processing, and then there were commercial changes. Tokugawa was really the big period for tea.
0: So if um, a ordinary person in the Tokugawa period wanted to, well, just drink tea during a day, where would they be able to get them? Do they usually make them at home, or are there places in the streets that they can go to to just casually buy a cup of tea?
1: Both. Um, as I said, most of the population that was drinking tea were peasants, and as I sort of indicated earlier, peasants uh, who farmed all kinds of fields uh, around the edges of the field would grow tea bushes and then they then they would pluck the tea and generally this was for home consumption so a, a lot of the, probably the majority of the population got their tea by growing the plant and then uh, during the tea. tea ripens in April. The, the tea is ready to be plucked in April. So that's not that's that's just before the busy period in planting rice. So that the timing works out really well. And then once you've done that, then you can process the tea for whatever way you're going to do it. You can roll it, you can steam it, you can roast it, you can do whatever you want to. And then you have tea for home for the whole period. So it becomes something that's done by farmers. But then certainly there were one of the one of the important developments of took out period is the development of big cities uh, like Edo and Osaka and Nara and Kyoto and other cities. And in all these cities, you found merchants, and you found you could find even restaurants where tea were tea was available. There's a specific this particular kind of uh, uh, store that was called a chaya, and the chaya was where you could get tea. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in order to attract customers, uh, they made the people who served tea at uh, these chaya at these tea tea stores mostly women. And so the chaya or the tea store became associated with uh, other things, shall we say, than tea, uh, if you get my meaning, uh, uh, with a kind of... Uh, the, the feminine virtues and things like that as well. And the Dutch who were ensconced in Nagasaki at the time made a big deal about how all of these uh, chaya, all of these tea stores were places of the most terrible morals. And people would do all sorts of things. But you could go to a chaya, you might get it from a merchant on the street, or particularly if you're a farmer, you might grow it yourself.
0: Now, in well, as we enter the modern period, so to speak, um, in 1906, this guy Okakura Tenshin, um, a frequent name on this channel recently, he wrote the famous book of tea that promoted drinking green tea to the West, and as a well, a new member of the modern nation, so to speak. How did Japan industrialize the production of tea and advertise it for the various merits of drinking tea?
1: Well, uh, tea, first of all, tea advertising goes back to the Edo period. If you look, there, there are, um, if any of the listeners are uh, familiar with sumo, you know that there are charts that rank the sumo wrestlers. Well, there were, there were advertisements by the 19th century in Japan that ranked restaurants and foods. And they ranked tea. And of course, the best tea was from Uji. So that, that was, it was like it was the Yokozuna of uh, of tea. Uh, and so they're advertising from the Edo period. But in the modern period, then uh, one of the things that's very important to realize about tea is that uh, so Japan is forced open by the United States and by the European nations. And the new Meiji government wants to industrialize very quickly. And they say to themselves, what do we have to send to other countries so that we can make foreign currency? And there were three things that the Japanese had that people in Europe and the United States particularly wanted. One of them was silk. Then Japan had coal, which didn't need any particular uh, addition to finish it. But the other was tea. And tea becomes a very important export. And this had both good uh, aspects and bad aspects as well. The bad aspect was that the tea that Westerners liked particularly was sencha. And so Japanese companies standardized sencha, and a lot of those wonderful varieties of the Edo period disappeared as a result of that. So Sencha, all it's all the same as sent to United States, it's sent to Europe, it's sent to Russia, it's sent all over the world. And it becomes famous Japanese tea, eventually outcompetes Chinese tea, and becomes the, the favorite in the world. So one thing you must realize is that Japan was a very important export, export for, uh, or excuse me, tea was a very important export for Japan, uh, and made a lot of money for the Japanese and uh so that was one thing that was very important. I forgot what's what's the what's the um what what's the upshot of your question then oh you want to know so the, the so when it becomes important for export, then the producers of tea have to find a way to cut their costs and uh, originally there were in the late eighteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds probably up until about the nineteen twenties. Uh, when when April came around and it was time to pluck the tea or when it was time to roll the tea or do whatever you're going to do and get it ready for export, there were these women who came out of the hills, out of all over the place to make money to do this for the farmers. And so the role of women in the production of tea is something that's very important. And this was one of the ways that tea was Uh, process then in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But eventually the owners came to realize that they were spending too much on labor. And so one of the important trends is mechanization. And now if you go to Japan and you go to a place where tea is uh, sold, the whole process is mechanized. They even have computers today. That do the whole thing. And there will be something that steams a tea uh, automatically. There will be something that then it gets on a conveyor belt and it goes down and it gets roasted and it goes, it, it, There are automatic, these big claws that roll a tea. So there's no human intervention and they try to save costs as much as possible. So mechanization, another thing that was important was to find the right kinds of tea and so Jap- the Japanese scoured the world for tea they even tried to make black tea but the Japanese variety of tea they had wasn't very didn't taste very good as black tea so that failed and mechanization and then uh, as you get uh, tea exported eventually this uh, and as the export market was particularly good in the United States. Uh, interestingly enough, where I am right now in Illinois, in the Midwest, there are barns. If you're if you're if you're careful and if you go to the right place, there are barns that still have the Japanese advertisements on them for tea uh, that date back to the 1920s and 30s. The um, these advertisements. Uh, so eventually, the export though begins to shut down, particularly as you get closer to World War II. And then the idea was, we've got to sell tea to the Japanese. And so then they, they began to really go in for advertisements of, of tea to the Japanese. And they um, made advertisements promoting the health benefits of tea. There was a discovery made, I believe it was in the 1920s, that said that uh, tea contained vitamin C. This was very good for your health. So drink Japanese green tea. So you get a full-on uh advertisements of, of for tea up until the 1930s when Japan enters a war period. And then they link tea to the war effort and to the effort to uh fight. And uh, you know, tea gives you Yamato Damashi, gives you the Japanese spirit if you drink tea. The Japanese lost the war, they're very devastated by the war, uh, but Tea came back and came back very strongly in the 1950s and 60s. And there you have lots of advertisements. And today you have modern advertisements of tea that talk about um, how uh, tea is uh, so good for being sociable and how it's so good. Uh, Particularly in very modern advertisements, you have the idea, well, tea is a way to get away from work. Go have a glass, go have a cup of tea and go into some place in nature and relax don't work so hard, but relax from tea relax with tea so there were lots of advertisements and uh in the book that I wrote, there are several i mentioned several uh prize winning uh tea uh advertisements that came out in the uh uh seventies and eighties and even later
0: so um these conceptions. About the health benefits of tea um, that a lot of people would have nowadays, such as, uh, like you mentioned earlier, tea, drinking tea, being able to prevent cancer or um, things I've heard like um, drinking tea um, or tea containing caffeine or I guess specifically green tea. Um, containing caffeine uh, therefore can help you work more efficiently or even things like drinking green tea can help with your meditation that kind of thing Um, so would you say that these were a result of the um, advertisement campaign for promoting green tea?
1: Well I don't think many of the advertisements talk about uh, excuse me meditation but um, they did talk Quite a bit of, I mean, it was. It's whether even if you're drinking the brown tea way back in the 800s and 900s, uh, tea has caffeine in it and it has catechins in it, and all these things are good for your health. So, there's no doubt that tea is good for you, but that's any tea because remember, the tea all comes from the same plant. So, even if you're drinking brown tea, uh, if you drink it daily, it's good for you and it does. Uh, help your body, it uh, helps you to focus your mind. So it could be good for work, you know, have a glass of tea, focus your mind, get too busy on your work. It could be good uh, also as a kind of meditation. But it's it's in general, it's good for your health. But I wouldn't want to say that green tea is especially much better than black tea. They're really all about the same. And the other thing is that what people don't realize is that coffee also has the same kind of effect. So coffee and tea both are good for you in health terms.
0: Well, since we're not uh, we're not a health program, um, let's move on to talking about I think it, uh, is one of your major um, uh, points through uh, talking about the history of tea. So for many Western countries, especially nowadays, green tea is closely associated with the Orient, um, whether it be Japan or China. So from a perspective of consumption and production, what does this history of tea in Japan reveal about the role of um, green tea in particular as a cultural symbol?
1: Uh, I think it's... It's a cultural symbol of Japan, and I, I'm pretty sure that I mean it's considered in Japan to be a uh, a kind of nokebutsu. So you know, and that's Japanese. But what it really means is that the production and marketing of tea is a kind of art. So that in that sense, this is in Japan. You find it's very true. Uh, The Japanese are not nearly the world's largest exporter of tea anymore. China is. But uh, many people think that the Japanese tea is better, tastes better. They want that more. I don't know why. Anyway, though, um, and and it's often hard to distinguish between Chinese and Japanese tea, but um, it's a cultural symbol in Japan uh, and and is a kind of symbol of Japan just as uh, sushi is or as other things are, it's a symbol uh, of Japan. It's a symbol, uh, it has association with Zen, as we said. So it's associated with meditation and uh, looking inward. Uh, and it's uh, particularly, it was particularly associated with Japan uh, in the United States um, in uh, the 20s and 30s. But even today, you find that the area tea tea production in Japan is actually going down, and uh, that's because the home market for tea seems to be shrinking. More and more Japanese turn to coffee. This this trend began in the uh, after World War II that they began to turn to coffee rather than tea. But you still find uh, tea counterattacking by selling uh, bottles and vending machines and also at convenience stores and other places. So you find tea all over Japan and the youth, the concern is that the youth of Japan are going to drink green tea, but they're not even going to know how to make the tea uh, in the the teapot. So uh, it's by the point of all this was though that tea, the growing area of tea for the Japanese anyway, is the export market, and that's because tea is not only has the health benefits, but is also associated with Japanese culture. And as Japanese culture has become something of kind of a, that that is in favor around the world, tea is too, and so. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting right at your point about how it symbolizes Japan. I'm not sure how I can if I can do that, but in any case though, it is um, certainly something that is associated very heavily with Japan and to some extent China as well and Vietnam. Those are the three major producers of green tea.
0: amazing. um and through the transformation of the production, the cultivation. Um, the enjoyment of green tea. Um, I guess my last question for you is: How do you see um, the representation of the transformation of Japanese society through this history of green tea?
1: Well, uh, I don't know if you want me. Maybe I'll just stick to the modern period. But one of the one of the one interesting trend is that um, green tea be uh, green tea became really very central to Japanese culture uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so you find that if you went to an office, that, that there was always someone who would serve you some green tea. And you find it all over the place in Japan during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it's associated, if you look at literature, which is another place to examine to see the history of tea, you see that tea is always associated with someone being sociable someone trying to serve a guest, someone trying to uh, be sociable to another person, something like that. And so tea is, was always something that was known for sociability up to that time. If you look at modern in, uh, iterations of tea, however, uh, now there are manga characters that are known for their tea. One of them is called Hyogenmono. Hyogemono, uh is a name... For a, uh, a tea master, uh, uh, Furuta Oribe, I believe his name was. Uh, in any case, so he's called Hyogemono in the manga. And he was known not only for liking tea, but also for liking tea cups and tea bowls that were very warped and individual. So now he is this, this character who's known for his individuality and for standing out from the crowd. So tea has gone from something that is part of the crowd to something now that you drink if, if you want to be an individual. If you want to be different from the crowd, you drink green tea. And that's in the, mo- that's in the modern period.
0: This is all very fascinating. And um, thank you so much again for your time and joining us um, on the channel today.
1: You're quite welcome. I enjoyed it very much. I hope that I uh, got some people to drink some tea and I hope that I also uh, uh, enlightened people a bit about uh, the book and that they will enjoy it if they pick it up.
0: Yes, I, I'm sure um, next time we drink tea, we'll all have much to think about. Um, so for our listeners, thank you for tuning in. This is New Books in Japanese Studies with Professor William Ferris and his new book, A Ball of a Coin, A Commodity History of Japanese Tea. I am Jingyi Lee, and I will see you soon. <laughs>